You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 294. Hi everybody and welcome back on this beautiful April Sunday morning. The sun is shining, beaming through the windows. I'm staring out and I can see blossom on the neighbour's trees. I was out yesterday in good old Blighty and you can tell when it's getting warm in Blighty, can't you? Because people start to have barbecues at the any excuse to have a barbecue and also they have the brave, foolish young'uns taking their shirts off. So yes, there must be some sunshine in the air. Well, uh, this uh, is part two of uh, the three-part series on the dedicated to the outdoor show. Uh, Andy's disc of interviews has finally arrived. Hurrah! And thanks to everybody for nagging him. Uh, so we have a real plethora during this podcast. We've got one, two, three, four, five, about seven interviews. Uh, so there's a real mix in here. Uh, hopefully, some of which will be of interest to you. Now, uh, if you're enjoying these uh, these podcasts, which I hope you are, I get a lot of uh, feedback uh, these days, and we'll be reading some out uh, in later shows. Um, I would love it if you wouldn't mind, uh, and you're on the website at the moment or the internet. Uh, there's a link on the Backpacking Light website or on the Outdoor Station too the European Podcast Awards. Uh, well, thanks to everybody who voted for us last year. We won the uh, UK Business Podcaster, and uh, it would be nice to maintain that if at all possible. We'd even go a stage further and get to the European level, uh, which would be uh, would be fantastic. So um, if you can spare five minutes, I think it's just a case of click and, and, and send um, uh, to, to vote. We would appreciate it. I would appreciate it, and it gives me a little bit of feedback for... The hours spent doing this. As I say, it is a Sunday and I intend to go out for a bike ride this afternoon once I get this all edited and loaded. Anyway, let's get stuck into the show. Now, of course, the outdoor show was up at the NEC recently and uh, Andy and I met up there on the Friday. Uh, He went one way and I went the other. And the first person that he spoke to, he thought it was a good start to uh, go and speak to somebody who was um, organising this forthcoming uh, Keswick Mountain Festival. Uh, Lucy is one of the organisers there. We've seen a lot of promotion for this festival uh, dotted around the magazines and the internet and so on so of course Andy wanted to find out more and what we could expect if you wanted to venture up there uh, Keswick is also well known for its uh, mountain festival which uh, this year is happening from the 19th to the 23rd of May and I have Lucy with me who's the director of the festival Lucy what can we expect this year? Uh, The festival is really a great celebration of the outdoors, um, everything you can do in the Lake District and Keswick itself. Um, You can um, book onto guided walks, guided bike rides, um, guided climbs, uh, paddling sessions on Derwent Water. Um, We also run uh, sporting competitions as well. Um, You can have a go um, or you can participate in triathlons. We have a trail race, uh, we have a fell race. Uh, We also work um, with the Climbing World to put on a dry tooling competition. Uh, We also run a mountain bike event as well at the festival. The festival also has a, a festival village called the Adventure Base where people can come along and look at stands have a go at taster activities if you've kind of never tried anything in the outdoors. So we have climbing walls um, there. We also have um, have a go paddling sessions. Loads for the kids as well. So we have bushcraft demonstrations, um, some stuff for the smaller kids, kind of yoga sessions on the, on the park and lots of different things. So something for everybody. So if you want to be really cool and do a hardcore, do a triathlon or... Uh, um a long bouncing foal race you can but if you want to take the, the young kids and 
um, ha have them have a great time and yet still experience a bit of the outdoors you can as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the festival really encompasses everything for everybody. Um, with families, um, we have family adventure days that families can participate in, as well as family climbing um, days as well. Um, on the adventure base itself, we, we kind of cater for the children and we have lots of activities for them. Lots to do in the evenings? Yep, we have a great, fantastic speaker programme. We've got Sir Reynolds Fine speaking this year, along with Leo Holden, Andy Cave, Andy Kirkpatrick, Joss Naylor, um, and Paul Errington, who's an endurance mountain biker. So we also run a party in the evening on Friday and Saturday night as well. OK, so um, I guess there are a lot of people that uh, know about the festival have not been there, but um, I'd certainly recommend it. And it's 19th to the 23rd of May, something there for everybody. Lucy, thanks very much. OK, thank you. <laughs> um, I've reached a, a stand that's fascinating, but it's going to be quite a challenge to describe in audio. But anyway, uh, let's have a go at it. I'm at the Wappentack stand with Alison, and Wappentack produces metallic 3D models, maps of your favourite outdoor locations. So <laughs> see if you can have a go at explaining to me, because these are fascinating things. Uh, hello. Um, we've invent invented the Wappen map, which is a contoured metal map. It comes in a 2D format. Um, it comes with a greetings card and a, a stand, and you can send it through the post. Um, and then the recipient or you, uh, pulls the contours very carefully apart to create a 3D representation of the landscape. Uh, they're made of stainless steel, so they're quite hardy. And we've got various different areas. Um, the main ones being Yorkshire Dales, Peak District, Lake District, Brecon Beacons, Nodonia, and we also do Ben Nevis. Um, the great gifts for people that love the outdoors, I think, or climbing. They are. I mean, they're about the size of a large postcard, so they're easily slipped to the post. Um, and I mean, just looking at some of them here, the Snowdonia is always a very popular destination. We've got uh, Collard Clewellyn, we've got Snowdon itself, we've got Triffon, uh, Pennigent, and you know, you look at them and you think, "Yep, yep, that's Triffon. That's the that's the mountain. That's the ridge." And they're rather appealing. How on earth did you get the idea for this? Well, I've, I've been a metal worker for about 20 years, designing all sorts of tableware, giftware, that type of thing, uh, for about 20 years. And I'd made some very large uh, contoured uh, metal maps uh, for an exhibition, and people were really responded very well to them. And so I decided to make some much smaller, more affordable maps that people could interact with directly themselves um, and become part of the, the, the whole kind of process. Well, they are fascinating. It's a great present for somebody who's a, a walker, a mountaineer, or something like that. You can have your own little 3D metallic map, put it on the wall, put it on the coffee table, I guess, play with it, trace it. It's, they're, they're fantastic things. Now, um, it's difficult. It is difficult to explain these things by audio, but of course you're on the web. Um, your web address is? It's www.wapentac.com, and that's about W-A-P-E-N-T-A-C. But probably if you just go in on Google and do uh, contoured metal maps, you have a good chance of coming up with it. And the website will give you a good idea of how it works and what they are. Yes, that's correct, yes. I reckon these are the ideal kind of birthday present, kind of Christmas card present for an outdoor 
person, Walker Mountaineer. Yes, yes. I mean, most of the ones we do sell are, uh, tend to be gifts for people that, that enjoy some, something outdoors. They're fantastic. Also fantastic memento of your favourite spot or favourite hill as well. Alison, thanks very much and good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, as Andy was also looking for the unusual and the popular, I was doing exactly the same, following little huddles of crowds who were showing interest in various stands, one of which was uh, a bell tent. Uh, now, it wasn't any normal bell tent. This was the Vogue end of bell tent. It was exotic. It had a, a carpets, it had a bed, it had a wood-burning stove, it had a candelabra, um, and it had a lot of interest. Now, as many people know, we're into more the lightweight approach, but that's, that's just one area of camping. There's all sorts of different genres that people like to pursue. And this one is commonly known as glamping, glamorous camping. Tobin Cleves is the owner of Bell Tent UK. So, first of all, I asked him to explain for our listeners what glamping is all about. The idea of glamping is grabbing half, half your house, filling up your car with it, going to a field and then decking out your, you know, your tent in a real sort of boudoir fashion so it's really comfy. It's, and, you know, as my, I've got a friend of mine called Bruce Parry and his quote from my website is, um, any fool can be uncomfortable. And the whole point of it is just maybe really comfortable camping. So describe the, describe the tent for people who are listening. OK, it's a, it's a classic bell tent, um, which is uh, like a teepee, apart from it's got vertical walls all the way around that go up to 60 centimetres, and then it's like a teepee. And the great thing about a bell tent is you can roll the walls up, so if we're ever lucky enough to get a sunny day in this country, you can roll the walls up. And the material it's made from? 100% um, unbleached cotton canvas, so it's yeah, the old school. So, coming back to the old school thing, the, the traditional uh, canvas tents of, of years gone by obviously were a little bit dubious with regards to condensation and leaking and all this sort of thing. So, have they solved all those problems now? Yeah, it's completely easy to solve. Um, this, this is a, a 10 ounce canvas. Some people come up going, oh, that's really thin compared to what they used to when they were, you know, a scout or whatever. But things that the proofing has moved on so far now, and also the quality of the machining and everything, you don't need to hump all that weight around. So, yeah, this is a 10 ounce core, 185 grams cotton uh you know the tents start at 17 kilograms so you wouldn't necessarily want to hike with it but you know carrying it across the field from your car is not a problem and they take they take about sort of 12 minutes to put up as well so they're really quick to put up now you were saying that um, everything inside the tent is uh, is supplied can be supplied by yourself uh, and it is very luxurious we have a double bed uh we have uh, some headrests at the back there we've got a is that a sort of like a duvet fold down no we do these are these are cotton filled um, mattresses from india so they're actually they're, they're rolled you can roll them use them as a bolster rolled up or roll them and actually sleep on them um, we do cotton sleeping bags with some designers on them. But yeah, the, the whole idea is we've got this sister site, we, which is called Camping with Soul. That's our accessory website. And so that's all this lovely stuff, the fluff, as we call it. Whereas Bell Tent UK is very much about selling, you know, because scout groups and everyone buy off us. But yeah, it's, it's just a modern take on a classic tent, really. But I think it's the, it's the nice touches like the, the candelabra of candles you've got here and also a wood-burning fire, of course. Yeah, we get these made in the, um, in the UK. They're brilliant, actually. The, the legs unscrew and everything. And I've designed it so that the, uh, the, the flue comes out of the side of the tent, not the roof. And because you've got these vertical walls and an overhanging roof, it just means that the, the rain doesn't need to have that. don't have the rain issues of making a hole in your roof. So you can actually do all the cooking and everything else in here on there? Yeah, if you want to. Um, they're best for giving the heat. Again, it's because it is quite close to the side of the tent. I wouldn't fry on it because you'll get fat on your roof. But, um, yeah, it's great for kettles. I haven't actually got it on this particular stove, but we do an optional little water tank that goes on the side, and so you can have constant hot water if you want. 
It's lovely. I mean, it really is a very, very romantic setup. Now, tell me about some of the customers that are buying these sort of things. Just describe who, who this really appeals to. Well, we started selling these about four years ago. Uh, I basically bought one because I wanted it as my honeymoon suite when I got married. And they were £1,000, and I was just like, that's a ridiculous amount of money. So I then started looking abroad, and I found a manufacturer, got them made, and I sell them for about 299 quid now. When we started doing it, it was very much glamping people. So it was sort of people at private parties, festivals, VIP people. And uh, now everyone's buying them because it is just, you know, a lot of people are still doing this thing called staycationing. I don't know if you've heard of it. But it's basically staying in this country because the exchange rate is so bad. And so a lot of normal families are now buying these because it's a lovely, lovely usable space and you're getting back to camping. It's good. And I suppose it's not just the actual going away and camping. You can put this up in the garden and actually have quite a good summer as well. Being yeah, well. exactly. Especially as the walls roll up. So you can end up with a really nice sort of chill out zone or a playroom or whatever. And it's all good. So to find more information about uh, the, the obviously range of products you do and the sizes and prices and yeah, so where can come to the website. So it's uh, www.belltent.co.uk or campingwithsoul.co.uk. And do you just sell direct or do you sell through any retailers? No, we, we tried that and it doesn't really work. So we just sell direct. We concentrate on doing it right and sort of it. It takes about sort of three days to come. But the website has got probably nearly a thousand pictures on it. There's galleries. Everyone sends in their pictures of when they're glamping. So it's brilliant. So you can really get a good idea of what the tent's like before you buy it. the home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. It's all about getting out and having much more fun. Without doubt, one of Cicerone's most popular authors is Paddy Dillon. He's also one of our most popular regular interviewees. Paddy, uh, welcome back to the Outdoor Station. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Now, you're here working like mad as ever, and uh, I've lost track with the number of guidebooks we've got at the moment. But, but in the last year since we've last seen you, you, you've done a trip that sounds really fascinating, and I think it's going to become something of a bit of a standard for those of us looking for something a bit different. And that's Greenland. In Greenland, yeah. Um, I only became aware of this trail, believe it or not, by walking on the Canary Island of El Hierro and in the burning heat um, on a long, dusty, ash-strewn trail, um, the words Arctic Circle Trail were mentioned by a German woman who was basically taking a holiday on El Hierro. And I thought, Arctic Circle Trail? Uh, where's that? I mean, presumably it's in the Arctic. And she told me, yes, it's in Greenland, where she worked as a tour guide in the summer, and it stretches more or less from the international airport to the coast and takes about nine days to cover. So I Is that a first, an international trail that starts at the airport? I think it must be. I it's can't a good think, innovation, though, isn't it? Yeah, I can't think of any other international airports I've ever landed at where I've just walked away with my bag and I'm actually already on the trail. But the thing is, it's also within a day's walk of the ice cap. So I thought to myself, I'll start by going in the wrong direction. I'm going to go up to the ice cap. I'd love to see it, love to set foot on it. And then I'll walk my Arctic Circle Trail from the ice cap all the way to the sea. And not only that, but back again. That was my plan. Now, I... I gather there's a guidebook somewhere in the preparation for this so uh, maybe over the next couple of years a lot of us can explore it but um, come on take me through what's unique about it because I, I get the feeling it was quite an experience yeah it's quite an experience because it's one of these trails where 
everything, and I mean absolutely everything, has to go with you because once you start, you're not going to get any chance to resupply. If any of your gear breaks, if anything wears out, if anything happens to you, it's up to you to sort it out. I mean, it's a remote trail. It's by no means a difficult trail, but you are in the wilds, and when you get to, say, the halfway point, you're a minimum of, say, three and a half, four days' walk from help. So if anything happens to you in the middle, um, you're basically at the mercy of anyone else who comes along. Um, So you really do need to be not a sort of, you know, an out-and-out adventurer, but you need to know what you're doing in the wilds because you have to look after yourself, cook for yourself, you know, sort out all your own route finding for yourself because no-one else is going to do it for you. So you've mentioned that train isn't particularly difficult, but I guess it's long, big days with wonderful camp spots. Um, But there are huts along the trail, aren't there? Yeah, there's a series of huts. Um, sort of the first one you would actually come across is like an unofficial hut because it's really just an old caravan that was parked in the middle of the tundra and then a couple of wooden huts were added to it. Um, so that's like an unofficial one. The rest are all official huts. And they occur at nice intervals, say between 10 and 20 kilometres. Um, so like I say, if you actually... You know, approach this trail in the right frame of mind it's not actually a difficult trail to walk, the days aren't immense but the other thing is Greenland being Greenland, wide open country, wild camping is allowed virtually anywhere I think the only place it's forbidden is within 20 metres of an archaeological site, so wild camping is actually made for that but if the weather is against you and your tent is going to blow away then by all means fall back on the huts. I was going to ask you about the weather. Um, I guess you were there sometime during the summer months, but uh, what what can we expect if we're walking um, you know, day after day on the train? Yeah, I deliberately went between the end of August and beginning of September. Now, what happens there is you get a very stable period of weather generally, but it is weather. It can change from day to day. The weather's either going to come from the east or the west, If it comes from the east, it's coming off the ice cap, so it's cold, dry air, and it just whips across the tundra. And if you put your tent in the way of it, it'll flap around, um, so you'll get a restless night, if you like, and it'll be cold. But the thing is, it will also be clear and sunny. And the moment you can find a little hollow out of that wind, you feel the temperature rise. I mean, you're in great sort of, you know, clear blue skies and sunshine, but the further west you go, the more mixed the weather will come. It's always different near the coast. But the place where the trail starts, at the International Airport at Kangaluswag, that has the best weather in the whole of Greenland. 300 clear days a year. Now, I can't say sunny days a year, because for half the year, it's, it's like nighttime. Um, it's north of the Arctic Circle, so the sun goes down and doesn't reappear. But the sky is clear for 300 days in the year. When you get to the western end, where the trail finishes at Sisimut, um, a small town on the coast, the weather is mixed, so you'll get your showery day and your sunny day. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is the seasons. It's not a winter walk. By no means is it a winter walk. It's exclusively confined to the very brief summer months. Start in June, and you're going to have trouble with the meltwater. When everything's melting and the rivers are high and you have to ford them, that's when you have problems. July, the water's gone down. It's now waist-deep instead of chest-deep. Um, come the end of July and into August, um, it's 
down to knee deep and then when I went it was below knee deep. But the other big problem with the seasons or the summer season are the mosquitoes. Soon after the melt, the mosquitoes start and they start about mid-June and they will descend on any warm-blooded animal, humans included, and won't give up until nearly the end of August. So I went at the end of August, I got the last of the good weather and none of the mosquitoes. Sounds like a good... That sounds like a good, a good tip to me. Now, as ever, I guess, when we're opening up new trails, there's a bit of a premium to pay in terms of price for exploring them. So I mean, how expensive a holiday is it and how easy is it to get there? The big expense is your flight to Greenland. Now, if you put your thinking head on and plan it all out properly, it needn't cost a penny more. Now, that's with qualifications because the flight is the most expensive element, but Air Greenland, which only flies from Copenhagen to Kangaluswag, you can't get there any other way. Um, Air Greenland does have some economy fares. If you get in there quick enough, you'll get the economy fare, but you certainly won't get a budget fare. No such thing in Greenland as budget travel. So the travel is the most expensive part. If you take a bag full of trekking food with you, you don't need to buy anything from the shops. And as everything in Greenland is imported, prices are high. Um, so you need to be aware of that. Accommodation is expensive in Greenland. Even for basic, the most basic hotel accommodation is very expensive. So if you can limit your spending in Greenland, if you can take your trekking food with you, then basically your flight there can be the only expense. And then you can walk the whole trail for free costs nothing to camp, costs nothing to use the huts. You'll have to buy a, you know, a can of gas or a bottle of uh, spirit for burning um, because you won't be able to take that on the plane. But you should be able to do the trail without incurring any further expense. But just to give you an idea, it could cost you 75 to to £100 per night to stay in a hotel. But at Sissimut there is a hostel which works out about £15 a night and anything on top of that is extra. You'd have the use of the kitchen, the dormitories, for the £15. Washing and drying your smelly clothes after nine or ten days on the trail might cost you another fiver. And so for 20 quid, you're suddenly in the lap of luxury. And that is the only place I know of on the trail where you're actually going to get any kind of service for that sort of price. Anything else, you pay a premium for. And the only person I know that's ever been there told me that the people are incredibly hospitable. The people are amazing. I mean, you're either going to meet um, Danish people who have either moved there or were born and reared there, and Inuit people, the native people. Uh, the Inuits generally don't speak that much English. The Danish generally speak a bit of English. Um, so when it comes to conversations, it can be a bit sort of um, awkward at times just to get things understood. Um, but anyone involved in the tourist industry will speak English and German. Um, so... Uh, and they would be the main visitors, Germans more than any, uh, than the, the, the British. Um, but I noticed from the, um, the uh, visitor books in the huts that virtually every single European country, as well as America and, and Canada, had had visitors on that trail, walking it and writing down their experiences. Um, but the people are great, you know, I mean, they... they Generally, if they're not working in tourism, they're generally working in the, the field of um, fishing and hunting. And when it comes to um, what Greenland is self-sufficient in, it's basically any kind of seafood from shrimps up to whales and then land mammals such as muskox and reindeer. 
Um, but anything else, all food stuff is brought into the country um, and you pay the price for that. <laughs> so it's worth taking your own food but um, giving yourself a bit of scope to sample some of that seafood. <laughs> yeah, the seafood is incredible. I never ever managed to find a piece of whale or seal. I would have loved to have tried just a taste sample. Um, but uh, once I did actually manage to get a Greenlandic um, meal where a variety of things were laid before me, such as a, a little sliver of reindeer meat, some muskox, um, berries. They're very good on, on blueberries, which they pick in the summer. Um, so I have tried some Greenlandic foods, and they are really quite interesting and intriguing. But traditionally, the Inuit diet was almost 100% meat. And um, you might think that would be bad for you, but because a big proportion of the meat was seal meat, which is not bad with cholesterol, um, they actually were quite healthy people until we came along as Westerners and introduced them to bad things like sugar and alcohol. Uh, as ever, I guess. Now, you, uh, you, you walked the trail, but you also did this uh, excursion to the, to the ice cap. So uh, I guess when the book comes out, it's going to take us through that kind of journey. So how long are we talking about to do the whole trip? Well, my little side trip to the ice cap was uh, 37 kilometres from the airport to the edge of the ice cap. Now, that might sound like a lot, but I did that in a day, and I did that twice. Um, and the reason you can do that fast is because some years ago, only a few years ago, Volkswagen paid to have a dirt road built from the airport to the ice cap with a view to having a secret testing facility on the ice for their cars um, where they would subject them to extreme low temperatures. Now the road was built, the testing base was never built and the road was then promptly handed over to the local municipality to do with as they wished. So basically there's a perfectly fast walkable dirt road that is also used occasionally by four-wheel drive vehicles and four-wheel drive tour buses to get people up and down uh, to the ice cap. I just couldn't resist the idea of walking at great speed to the ice cap, just feeling the joy of being the only person stood on the ice cap that day in no doubt, uh, and then bailing out backwards and then starting the Arctic Circle Trail. So it was like a, a, a hefty one-day extension, which could be done over a period of two days, much easier. And the whole trail, we're talking about how long? Talking about, uh, and most people would reckon on about nine days of walking for the trail. So if you add an extension to the ice cap, if you went up there by tour bus and then walked back, you're probably talking ten days to walk the whole trail. Um, but the nine days is based on a hut-to-hut schedule. If you work outside that, if you wild camp, if you're a good, strong walker, you could do the whole thing in a week or less. Yeah, but you want to enjoy the solitude. So probably including flight time and orientation time, it's probably it's probably a two-week holiday, really. Two weeks with it, it would just fit in perfectly, and assuming you had no problem with the weather and that you went at a time of year when you weren't going to be hampered by the early meltwater in the rivers, because you do have to ford rivers, and one of those rivers is notoriously difficult to ford. Now, recently, just in the past couple of years, a footbridge was installed but there are no markers, no signposts and no path to the footbridge and it's three kilometres downstream from where you would normally ford and some people have spent a lot of time floundering around in bog trying to locate this footbridge only to find out they'd have been better off fording the river anyway. So I sort of I keep thinking of the footbridge as a bridge too far after the classic film. 
it's just a bit too far to be worth bothering with. But if you really have to use it, it's there. Now, you mentioned um, bogs. My ears always prick up at that point. Um, the trail is waymarked, is it? Um, it's waymarked in that the original plan, they went in and they built stone cairns roughly every kilometre and then said to the first walkers, if you would build intermediate cairns, that would be most helpful. But when it was first marked um, over a decade ago, there was little trace of an actual path, um, even though people were in the habit of travelling between Kangaluswak and Sisimut. There was little trace of a trodden path. When the cairns went in and people made a beeline from cairn to cairn, a narrow trodden path evolved in the, uh, what, what you call like moorland scrub. It's actually dwarf trees. The trees are no more than about four or five inches high, um, but they are trees. So although it looks like you're walking on a moorland, you're actually walking in a vast forest, um, just treading these little trees underfoot. But the cairns are the only markers. There are no signposts. And most of the cairns have a red semicircle painted on one of the stones, and that is a design taken from the Greenlandic national flag. So it's, it's intended to represent the sun um, in the middle of its um, passage across the sky, just as it's sinking below the horizon before vanishing for the winter. Um, so that's the design, a red semicircle painted on a large stone incorporated into a cairn. That is the marking system. But quite honestly, I can't really imagine anyone having trouble with route finding. But if you were really hopeless at route finding, if you did completely lose the trail, you could be gone forever and no one would know where you were. So you have to bear that in mind. You're the only person who knows where you are. I've got a funny feeling this is going to become uh, a future classic. Um, so, so thanks for doing all the exploration work for us, as ever. You're here for two days, of course, working hard. Um, talking about lightweight stuff, the islands, I guess. I'm talking on the subject of lightweight backpacking, and um, so it's like, how heavy is your pack? My pack is exceedingly heavy because it's absolutely crammed with lightweight gear. You know, tons of stuff I would never dream of taking away with me, doubling up on things. So, of course, I've got things I can compare and contrast there. And then when I load up a pack, it's likely going to end up at five kilos, something like that. Um, I'm also talking about the GR20 in Corsica, the Pennine Way, for which I've just had a guidebook published. I've only just seen it in the last couple of hours. And um, the GR221, the long-distance walk through the mountains of Mallorca. And uh, what's on the planning horizon for the next 12 months? Um, well, I've just got back from a whole month in Sardinia, and that's the second time I've spent a whole month there. Um, so as soon as I can find a couple of weeks spare, I can actually write that up and get it delivered, and it should be published within the next year. And then I'm off to the Channel Islands to take... Um, an old guidebook of mine that covers the entire island group and split it evenly between Jersey and Guernsey, update the whole thing in full colour with new mapping um, and then go to Iceland for the whole summer and not come home until either the weather's too bad to walk or until they physically kick me out of the country. So, uh, as, as busy a time as ever. Well, I guess we'll be talking about both Sardinia and Iceland at some point in the future. Paddy, have a good show. OK, thank you. I look forward to seeing you again. home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for outdoors people everywhere. You're listening to the theoutdoorsstation.co.uk A million listeners worldwide can't be wrong. 
I'm once again with Sam from Shiwi, and we spoke to Sam several times over the last five years since she first started. Of course, a lot of people remember her from the uh, appearance on Dragon's Den, uh, where they didn't quite go for it. But uh, you've had several appearances on Dragon's Den since then, looking at where are they now. So where are you now? Yeah, where are we now? Well, we've just moved into our third set of offices. Uh, about four months ago because we were too big for the last ones and at the same time I've recruited two more people so there's five of us officially now and then we have to get contractors in to help us with the other bits and bobs so going really well growing people wise because we need more staff to help run the office um, space we've had to take on a warehouse as well for the, the stock demand which is fantastic and also we've started just this year with some new products so before we had two colours now we've got five. We've got the NATO green and the desert sand. The NATO green came about, obviously, because we thought the ladies in the armed forces wanted something to camouflage. But also, I have to say, there's been an unusual market area that we never knew was around before, and it's a transsexual market. And they wanted a colour that would be more body-coloured. So that's the desert sand for the white guys and the NATO green for the black guys. Well, there's something that you wouldn't necessarily think about. I mean, with the, the Shiwi is a very, very simple device. How has the business developed um, for five years on one idea and kept going and grown so well? I guess, yeah, when you start with one idea, you have fantastic publicity to start with, but you need, like you say, keep the momentum going. And I think adding the new colours, although you might think, oh, it's not such a big thing, it, it is quite a big thing for girls wanting to match their mobile or match their backpack or whatever so that's that's helped us and it's newsworthy enough for people to say oh this has worked and oh people want it in different colors now but we've also introduced a few other products you may have seen some pants underwear that we had before they were okay but we've designed some special ones now that have actually got an x in the front of them which is a perfect fly for use with the shiwi so again that's something to shout about and perhaps the pants will take a while to to kick in and be popular but it helps with the promotion of the shiwi because the people were perhaps a bit unsure before thinking oh well if they're designing pants now then the shiwi must be fantastic um, and i think because of these new market areas that are coming about we've started with the outdoor industry but as i say the transsexuals have come about and now also the pharmacies and the medical industry i deliberately before didn't want to promote the product to that area because i didn't want regular outdoor people to think oh it's just a medical product but now we're safe in the knowledge that 90% of outdoor people have heard of it. Um, and we can go into the medical industry without regular people thinking, oh, it's just for disabled people or it's just for hospitals. Um, and a stat that's quite interesting, we just worked it out this week, we sell one shiwi every 10 minutes in the world. So. Congratulations. <laughs> Frightening thought. <laughs> um, again, I think the last conversation we had probably a couple of years ago, you had either just taken on or were just about to take on distri distribution in America and I think Australia. How does that all work out for you? That's going well. America hasn't done as well as we'd hoped. Unfortunately, it was just personal reasons for the company who'd taken it on to distribute it. So we've taken that back in-house and we still work with that company out there, but we run it from here. Um, but New Zealand has been brilliant. The person who does it there has set up her own small version of our offices here and also employs people in Australia to distribute there. But we've got 19 countries now worldwide. So I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but I've got um, an international marketing lady who, who works with them. The other very good one we've got is Spain. So the packaging's always been translated into Spanish. Um, and South Africa. 
and the South Africans have introduced shiwi into the mines because in the UK I don't think there's that many lady miners but in South Africa there's a huge amount and the toilet situation is pretty non-existent and so the women have suffered um, and it's huge the mining industry in South Africa is massive so well, congratulations I mean it's, it's fantastic to hear the uh, the success of the, the story and, and uh, it just goes to show that if you have a, a good simple idea and approach it well you can really um, really take it forward and so that's five years now um, and we always say you know where does the future look for you what's what's the next thing for you I think the next thing for Shiwi is to make the model that's worked in the UK work in the other countries. We sell the product to the people who are interested in the other countries, but up until six months ago, we didn't hold their hands, we didn't give them much guidance, we just let them run with it. But now we've got a model that works well in the UK and it's obviously been proven to grow. We're going to be working closer with our overseas distributors and we're going to start with the UK speak, um, English-speaking countries first because it makes sense and try and mirror that because the UK is a small place. So if we can mirror what we've done in the UK, in America, for example, we should be laughing, fingers crossed. <laughs> is, there, is there any sort of cultural differences that you've come across that's taken you by surprise in, in these different countries? Yeah, again, talking about the US, the way we describe the product, and we've had to change the packaging for them, is quite different. We find that US citizens, the ones who don't live in New York or in the cosmopolitan areas, um, are perhaps 10, 15 years behind the UK, so they're a little bit more embarrassed. The women are less outspoken than the British women. Um, and first time I came to the outdoor show, we found a lot of the men pulling their women away from short shoes. No, no. But now the women walk straight up to us and their husbands go and look at something else. So I think that's the cultural difference we've got to get over in the States. Um, New Zealand's fine, Australia's great. I think they're even more open-minded than the British. So we find different areas, different countries, there's different things to get around. Well, certainly from, from my own experience in the last uh, five years, and certainly when I saw you for here, first of all, five years ago, um, shiwi is definitely it's a word that's entered into the outdoor language now, uh, and it's, it's obviously sometimes said in jest and sometimes said uh, as advice, and I've heard a lot of guys actually suggest to, to females who are struggling, what you need is one of these. Uh, and um, so that's proved that it's, you, know, you really have penetrated the marketplace in a very big way, so congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. One thing Andy and I did notice this year was the sheer volume of walking opportunities at the outdoor show where there were numerous walking festivals, uh, numerous outdoor festivals, uh, places to visit, etc, etc. Um, and it's growing, which is good, which is good. It gets people out and uh, enjoying things. And also, let's face it, it's not as expensive as uh, some exotic travel. Uh, now, there is a uh, one of the walking festivals looming is on the Isle of Wight. And Andy went to speak to Paddy to find out more about what's going on offshore. Um, I know lots of walkers are always looking at ways to combine their walking passion with a, you know, a, a more softer general holiday. And uh, I'm at a stand with uh, Paddy uh, that's promoting the Isle of Wight Walking Festival. Paddy, this looks quite a, a fun weekend. It's a, it's a great uh, week. We do it for a fortnight. Um, this year, in particular, we've got 310 different walks going on. Um, from mile walks to 72 mile walks in 24 hours. So. 72 miles in... Now, that's not something you'd, you'd associate with the island, is it? It's not, no, but it, it does attract a lot of people and it's always very successful, so it's, um, it's a okay. challenge. <laughs> no, it's a very popular tourist destination, and, uh, but it manages to pack an awful lot into a small space, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, um, the event season now goes from... We start in around about April time. It used to be finishing... At, 
the old lot used to go dead in about September, but now there's things going on right to the end of November, early December now, so it, it's it's picked up a lot. The old white's alive, you know, it's great. So the fest the festival is in May, uh, and it's a week. And um, presumably there's a whole range of things you can do in June that week, and a whole range of accommodation that you benefit from from a traditional tourist resort. Yeah, um, from South Catering to camping. Um, if you want your quiet campsites, there's plenty of quiet campsites as well as your your havens and and your your family entertainment ones. But um, it's it's busy. It, it's great, and there's all you know something to do. The walking festival, the cycling festival. You've got your pop festivals now uh, as well. So it's, it's great. There is a a big move towards more sustainable forms of tourism, isn't there? And uh, not only do they, they help us indulge in cycling or walking and keep fit, but they, they stretch your season don't they, over a longer period. And, uh, but uh, just looking on the, the TV screen behind us, there seem to be hordes of people there. So uh, obviously something that's growing. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the one that you were just looking at there is the, uh, quite a popular walk. It's the, the Ghost Walk. Um, and uh, the one you were looking at there was in Shanklin, uh, the, the guy, that Mark Tucky, that does that. Um, very entertaining, <laughs> knows a lot about the Isle of Wight, where the ghosts allegedly are, and, and it's just great, you know, it's just very entertaining. Very, so we're very talking cool. about walking, but there's a tremendous amount of variety in that. Oh, from, from your flat walks, your linear walks, uh, cross-country walks, there's just so, so many. 310 we're doing in a week this year, so, and that's a lot of walks. That's fantastic. And if somebody's uh, fascinated by this and they want to have a look at it, I guess you're on the web somewhere? Yeah, we're on the, uh, on, on the website. Uh, if you log on to the Isle of Wight Council, uh, uh you'll, you'll find all the information there. So. Yeah. Just Google Isle of Wight Walking Festival. It's wonderful. Paddy, thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Many of our listeners, like Andy and myself, have been to Scotland at some stage, perhaps, and, and done some walking. Um, now, when we're, uh, we're out in the Highlands, uh, Andy and I have both commented uh, a couple of times on seeing the signs from the John Muir Trust, which are usually uh, on the side of the trail as you're walking past. Sometimes they have leaflets, sometimes it's just posters, sometimes it's just an information plaque about what they're doing in the area. Now, as much as we've uh, been there and obviously used some of the trails, as well as uh, been aware of the John Muir Trust, uh, we've never never actually found out more information. So as they had a stand there, Andy went to see James uh, and found that the membership level had just passed 10,000, which is a major landmark for such a small association. It is a landmark for the Trust. We were established in 1983 and we've grown from quite a small membership to a membership of 10,000, which may be small in international terms, but in the UK context, uh, um, it it is quite an achievement for us. Um, We own several areas of wildland across Scotland mainly. We have a UK UK, uh, emphasis. And uh, in order to provide um, both the John Muir Award, which has been very successful, another landmark for us actually is 100,000 John Muir Trust uh, award holders. And that's that's an award which fosters an encouragement uh, of appreciation uh, for the natural environment and to discover a wild place, find out about it and understand a bit more about why it's wild and what keeps it wild and do something to conserve it. So to, to uh, do that work and to, um, to actually do the work on our estates, uh, the land that we actually manage, um, we need more members and uh, 10,000 members is absolutely brilliant. That allows us to be sustainable, to, to manage the, the land that we have um, for the benefit of the wild animals and uh, plants that, that exist there. Yeah, we'll come back to membership uh, in a minute as to how you can support the work of the Trust, but I think a lot of people have heard of it, and, and 
but maybe not aware that I mean some of our very best wilderness spaces, uh, uh, certainly in Scotland, are are in in the ownership of the trust. I'm looking at the list here: there's Sandwood Bay, Quinag, and Ben Nevis. But the, your partnership work is particularly fascinating. Talk us a bit about tell us a bit about that. Well, we have quite a few partners, um, and really what we're trying to do with our partners is um, encourage them to take on uh, an attitude of, uh, of care of the environment. Um, in many areas, especially in Scotland, we have partners uh, with crofting uh, groups which have purchased the land under the Land Reform Act, which is coming in Scotland uh, uh, just after the Scottish Parliament was set up. And really what we're trying to do there is to support them in their activities, especially with environmental stewardship. And uh, where we can financial support, where we can't, we provide uh, uh, our expertise uh, in looking after wild areas. So what we're really trying to do with this is broaden our, uh, broaden our uh, appeal, uh, if you like, and our ethos of conserving wild areas of the country uh, and just spreading that, that, that ethos to these other groups. Uh, th- these partnerships are extraordinarily powerful, aren't they? Um, I, a few years ago, spent uh, a little bit of time in Inverie on the, in the Noidart and there's a fascinating, almost like new little community building up in the most sustainable way um, in one of the most wild parts of the country. But I guess without that partnership, the whole endeavour wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, I mean, that was our first area of land in Noidart. And um, to, to really look at the, the wider uh, uh, impacts of doing something there, we, we needed the community involvement. And to have the Noidart partnership on board and, and to be involved with the Noidart partnership is really important for us. And as you say, there's a, a thriving community on Noida. And if you ever get the chance to go, I definitely encourage you. It's, it's quite different from what you would find in most mainland areas, very much an island community. And, um, yeah, we, we've helped them really um, uh, in terms of their, their environmental projects. Uh, but, again, it's, it's gained us an understanding of what communities in these areas actually need and how we can support them in achieving their aims. Okay, well, there's uh, more than Noida, of course. There's Assington, there's... Uh the Nevis Partnership and the North Harris Trust, amongst others. A lot of people don't appreciate they can join the Trust. So uh, we were just talking about 10,000 members. So if somebody wanted to learn a bit more, wanted to, to become a member, uh, how would they find out about you? I think the best way is to have a look at our website, if you have internet access, and that's www.jmt.org. And that's all the information, not only on the tr- what the Trust is doing, uh, but also on how to join the Trust. Um, we have a very active membership, so in different areas of the country they organise lectures and uh, have get-togethers and can even come out to the estates and do some conservation work if you want to give something back to the wild places that all of us love. Okay, so it's not just passive support, it's campaigning, it's about actually getting out there, volunteering and helping keep, making, keep, helping keep these places special. Absolutely. It's about keeping the special wild places that we have special, and you can do that either by becoming a member or by coming out to one of our states and helping out. James, thanks very much. Good luck for the next 12 months, and may you go from strength to strength. Thanks. Well, that pretty well wraps up this smorgasbord of a show. I hope you've enjoyed the mixed content and it's kept you entertained for half an hour or so. Uh, one thing that uh, I would like to mention that I picked up just recently myself, actually, on another podcast, uh, which is Pods and Blogs, which is the BBC Five podcast, uh, dated 6th of April. Uh, for people interested in online and digital mapping and the release of data, uh, there's a very interesting interview with Chris Valance uh, from uh, BBC Five uh, about the uh, data that will be coming our way and as I say that's pods and blogs
Dogs, dated 6th of April. OK, well, that's it. I'm going to get this edited and uploaded, and then I'm going to jump on my bike and go for a ride. Hope you're having a good weekend, and uh, let's keep our fingers crossed this weather uh, stays more pleasant for the rest of the summer. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more from our extensive free library, please visit the website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. You can now follow The Outdoor Station on Facebook, where we chat about each programme we produce, answer questions and discuss future productions. Why not join us there? This podcast is produced and hosted by theoutdoorstation.co.uk. 